I'd like you to open to Ephesians chapter 3, the book of Ephesians. I was recently asked a question about why I did not talk on the subject of love very often. And I would think my answer at the time was, well, I use it a lot as a point or I mention it a lot, reference it in sermons a lot. I don't know why I haven't sat down and taught a whole series on it. I looked back in some notes and I had taught on it a couple years ago in a two-part series and so forth. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, let's see where we go with this. I need to hear that too. It was good for me because it made me think about something. And so I wound up in looking at various sections of scripture that magnify love on a section that probably is over our head, at least over mine. And it's a prayer. It's a prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians here in chapter 3. Well, I decided to use that as a text. And I'm going to title this message today, Filled with His Fullness. Because that's where this whole passage of Scripture leads us. And you'll see where we're going in a moment. But in chapter 3 and verse 16, this was the prayer that Paul prayed for these Ephesians. And, of course, it's for us also to, to glean from and to learn from and to consider and ponder and meditate on and so forth. This is one of the richest sections of Scripture I agree with the commentators. One of the richest sections of Scripture in the New Testament. Let's read it. Verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the conclusion of the section of Scripture that we've chosen as a text. It winds up with a prayer that says that God would grant you, and it ends by saying, to this conclusion, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I don't know how you all ponder and think about Scripture, if you read it, if you just read, or if you only hear it occasionally, like this morning, but this merits quality time. What does he mean when he says that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Is that possible? Is this what God wants to happen in our lives, that we, with our busy lives, might be filled with the fullness of God? What a prayer. Well, you start thinking about that, and then you have to go back to where we started in verse 16, what leads up to that? How do we come to that? And he begins, and I want to use the word grant as an expression of God's grace. It says, first of all, that he would grant you. Now, I hope you understand this, that if God does not grant us this, we cannot have or experience this. Whatever follows the word grant, that he would grant you. You cannot find it, you cannot obtain it, you cannot get it. We said last week in Jeremiah chapter 10 that it is not within a man who walks to direct his steps. He is made to walk, and he does walk in this world. But he cannot walk to the place that he should come to. He cannot direct his steps to the place that God has for him. Only God can bring you that way. God gives you information, you must use your will and be willing to walk that way, but only God can make you get there. And as far as being willing is concerned, this is a little theological, but it's wonderful. Said God said, I will put a new heart and a new spirit in you, 
He said, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and my law. That's Ezekiel 11. Is God able to do that? That doesn't mean we can just sit back and say, oh, well, I don't have to do anything, God. No, you will always in this lifetime be responsible to make choices. I mean, we are what we are because of the choices we've made all of us are. And when we get to heaven, it is God who will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We had to be faithful. We had to choose to be faithful. But God is the author of it. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. We couldn't have faith if it wasn't for God. We could read the Bible. We could go to church. We couldn't have faith. Faith comes from God. We are never independent from God and our need for him. He is always our need. One of the things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount is that we are poor in spirit. That when a man sees this, that I can achieve nothing, arrive at nothing, become nothing, I can have nothing when life is over unless God initiates the whole motivation to do this. Drawing me out of the world unto Christ was an act of God. I didn't one day wake up in a bar and say, you know, I need to get saved. I might have felt that way because of the disappointment of my life. But only God can put into my heart what we call godly sorrow. Even God calls it godly sorrow that leads to repentance. That God is everything that we need. And without him... We can literally do nothing while we can be busy and we can do with our lives things without God. We can do nothing that is acceptable to him. If we want to ever find ourselves pleasing to God and acceptable to God, there is only one way it can happen, and that's his way. Only he can open our eyes to see it, and only he can motivate us to do it. We are still, as the Bible says, we are still unprofitable servants because all we can do is what he tells us to do. That's the limit of what I can do. And yet he rewards us for doing that. So let's begin with the word grant and appreciate what he says here about what God can do and that he is asking him if he'll do it to you, that God would grant Give to you, allow you, make it possible, make it real for you, that he would grant you, he said, according to the riches of his glory. Now, I'm not sure I understand the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of that. That is something that is heavenly, something divine, something that pertains to the nature and all the attributes of God, his glory. God is glorious in his appearance. Everybody that's ever come before him has had to remark about the gloriousness or the glory of heaven or the glory of this or the glory of, of that. Here, I think it refers to something that can be made personal to you where God comes down to where we are with all that he is and he comes down to add to your life what you don't have. That God would grant you according to what he is able to do <laughs> that is beyond the average understanding. That he would grant to you uh, according to the riches of his grace. Then notice he said to be strengthened with might. Now, and, and I'm breaking this down because I want you to get each word Strengthen simply means to be strong. You know, we're told how many times to be strong in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Strength, the ability to be steadfast, to maintain, to hold on, that kind of strength. I'm not talking about being muscle-bound. I'm talking about that which attaches itself to God and will not let go, even though it is shaken and pressed down, even though it is tossed this way and that way. That's something that God gives that enables a man to hold fast. Do you understand what I'm saying? Strength. That God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might, in the inner man. Now, the inner man, 
there's volumes and books written on this. I'm going to make a few comments. I don't want to confuse anybody, but the Bible speaks of an inner man, the hidden man of the heart, Paul writes about, or the old man. There is a corrupt man, a man who is declared to be dead in trespasses and sins. You know that. And yet this person who is said to be dead in trespasses and sins is very much alive. They breathe, they eat, they work, they do, they raise families, they exist in a natural world, living a natural life, but they are dead. The Bible says they are dead in their trespasses and sins. There is something that is shut off to God. It's closed. Some theologians call it they are depraved. That is, they are dead to where there is no life in their spirit. They are unable to choose God to save them because they're dead. If they're dead, they're dead. Isn't it true that God alone can quicken? You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. How else could you ever have been brought to life? How could there ever been a resurrection of some deadness in any of us if God did not bring it to pass? He's the author of life. He's the only one who can give life. Life comes from God. And the only way a man can be made alive unto God is if God makes that person alive. Now, when he does, we call it regeneration. Or the new birth. That is, you are born anew, born again. What was dead is now alive. What was once separated is now joint. You were dead in all your trespasses and sins that God has chose to bring you back. To make you strong. Now that you are made alive unto God, you can be strong. There's never any more reasons, no more excuses for anybody to ever give up and quit. So even though you're not very old in the Lord, God is in such control of all the events of our lives that he said there is no temptation that can take you but such as is common to man. There is no time in your life when you're not protected. There's no time in your life when somebody is not watching you and have you in their mind and their thoughts. God is always there. We never have to give up. We never have to quit. Quitting is a choice. Giving up is a choice. You young men, I choose to quit. Giving up. Stop running. Stop trying. Stop doing. That's a choice you make. That's why you go backwards instead of forwards. That's why there are flaws in people's character. Some people are not trustworthy because you can't count on them to go forward. But it's God, in a spiritual sense, who causes us to press in, to go forward, to achieve, to try, to not give up. This is what being strong is all about. This is how God wants us to be strong, and he wants us to be strong in this inner man. Paul says, I delight in the law of God after the inner man in Romans 7. Theologically, some theologians see a man as being a duality. He's a two-part. He's a body and a soul. The body simply is the outer. This is what animates the soul. This is what the body only does what the soul tells it to do. If it's mad, a face gets red. If it's happy, it tells it to put its arms up and dance and smile. and put a, you know. The body simply expresses what rules on the inside. Are you with me? And what has ruled us on the inside for so long before Christ was darkness? We use our body, we use all of our faculties to serve ourselves, to find pleasure. Our mind, which is sometimes called the soul or the inner man, it involves the mind. It's where you think. It's where you make decisions. This soulish part of man is also where his emotions are. Anger, joy. Love, peace, all these emotional things are choices you make. It's where your intellect is. It's where you learn. It's where you think, where you ponder, where you consider, where you make determinations. This is all called the soul. But see, the soul can be very much alive naturally, 
And I believe man is a three-part person, has a tripart, he has a spirit, and I believe his spirit can be dead. There is a part of us that God abides in, and when that is dead, you're really governed by your soulish nature. The Bible says carnal, fleshly, soulish, sensual, these are things that describe a person who is not ruled by the Spirit of God in him. And when the Spirit of God comes in, he makes you new. He doesn't give you a new mind. That has to be renewed by the word of the Lord, the renewing of your mind. That's how transformation takes place. The soul is changed. Your ways are changed. Your thinking is changed. Your decisions are changed. The way you reason and figure out, all of that is changed by the entrance of the word because something on the inside of you now is alive and is feeding you. Thy word have I hid in my heart and so forth. Proverbs says, There is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. And I believe the seed of understanding in a man is his spirit, because as long as he's dead in his trespasses and sins, he doesn't see what God is saying. He cannot. A natural man what? Y'all remember this? A natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit, neither can he know them. I don't care how much of an IQ he's got, how smart he is, and how much he labors in study. He cannot know them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. It's something only the Spirit of God can do. So when we look at this inner man that he talks about here, where he begins this section of Scripture, he says, I pray that God would grant you to be strengthened with might in this New man on the inside, that you won't give up, that you won't cave in, that you won't fall apart, that you would begin to have your eyes opened to begin to see what wondrous things God has as a provision for your strength, as a provision for your success, as a provision for things working for you as they should, so that you can be the head and not the tail and so forth. That God would open your eyes to begin to see that and that you will make that decision to latch on to those things, bring them into your heart, and let this motivate you. Because this is how God works in us. God is at work in us, and this is how he works. He leads us and guides us according to his word. And remember, concerning this inner man, beloved, I wish above all things, how many of you all know over here 3 John 2? Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. That's right. So is it not true that unless the soul prospers, a man just wanders through life? Be with me on this one. Unless the soul, what God calls the soul... Unless this is not prospering here, changing, advancing, getting better, richer. Unless the soulish part of man is not changing more into what God is giving him to be changed into, he's going nowhere. He may be very religious, may be a preacher, may be very sincere about a lot of things, but you're going nowhere without God. And yet God will not make you believe his word. But he will put it out there with such strong influence in your heart that you'll want it. Listen, there's a whole bunch of people in this room right now who ought to be on their knees. I don't mean to do it now, but ought to be thankful for the fact that that drive you have in you, even though it's kind of weak and quiet, that drive you have came from God. Because God could leave us alone, folks, and we wouldn't be here two more weeks. We'd be gone. All he has to do is leave you alone. All you have to do is say, I don't want any more of that and start looking for another kind of way to do things you want and you'll be gone. But yet there's only one right way. There's only one true word. There's only one God who promotes that word. And all of this is focused on that man of the heart, that inner man that's in all of us that is being renewed daily. Didn't he say this? You've heard, I quoted a while ago, be not fashioned according to this world, but be transformed. I thought I was born again. You were born again. 
God didn't give you a new brain. He gave you a new heart. The influence of the heart of the word is you're willing to let that word influence you. Transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that you may know what the will of God is. Remember that? Romans 12 verse 2. You should know that. Now, back to our text here. He says, verse 17... That, or the Greek would say, I'm understanding as so that. Now, let me say all of this again, because we're trying to understand this. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might in the inner man, so that. In other words, that has to happen before verse 17 happens. Is that right? Would you agree to that? Don't agree with me unless you think it's right. That if I'm going to get to verse 17, I first of all have to accept and understand and have the experience of verse 16. Verse 17 says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Is it not true that you can be a church member and Christ not dwell in your heart? He may have certainly visited you. You may be under conviction this morning. He may be knocking at the door. That means he's outside, not inside yet. You may hear that voice in the song in the garden tenderly and softly he's calling. He wants to be in there and he will be in there. But he said, I pray that God will grant you these things. Pray that he'll make you strong and that your man on the inside will be strong, that Christ may dwell, abide, make his abode in your heart by faith. And then he goes on to say this, that you, that you being rooted, because this is what happens, that you being rooted and grounded, and there's our word, love that you, with Christ in your heart, with Jesus who and all that God will make him out to be in your life, that Christ coming into your life, coming into focus and, and beginning to see who he is and maybe more earnestly what he actually did for you, that you may be able to let him take you a little deeper Rooted and ground. See, rooted and ground is like an agricultural word and an architectural word. Rooted would have to do with nourishment, that, that he would feed you, that he would open your eyes to see spiritual things like you've never seen before, capturing your affections. Oh, Lord. And grounded, you know, is foundational. You make sure that what you're standing on is what the Bible says and that... I'm in the right way, doing the right things. But notice he said that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now, what does that mean? This is where you sit back, lean back in your chair for uh, 30, 40 minutes and ponder. Ten minutes, okay, five minutes, a minute. But it's a moment where you begin to ponder, what exactly does it mean? It must be important to be rooted and grounded in love. That love for God, love for each other, love for what? Love how? Meaning what? Who's the author of love? God is love. If any right love is ever taking place, you can be sure that God is in it. There's three Greek words for love, eros and phileo and agape. And agape, as you all know, is a God kind of love, the sacrificial kind of love, the giving love. The love that goes out whether anything comes back or not. God loved the world. The world doesn't love God. God loved the world again because that's what love will do. Then there's phileo, which all of us have experienced. We attach our things that we get pleasure from or enjoy a hobby, uh, entertainment, 
certain friends or people, certain ways. I mean, things that you derive pleasure from, things you like to do. These are things I love to do. It's not agape love, it's phileo love. And then there's eros, which is passion and sex and all of that. But that's not a Bible word, but the other two are. So he's not talking about rooted and grounded in liking things. But he's talking about something divine. That you being rooted and grounded in what God says he is. How can I know that? Well, there's got to be this process of being grounded and rooted. As you're studying, God's showing you things. As you're getting yourself firmly settled and becoming steadfast and immovable in the Lord, he's showing you things. Something of God must be coming into focus. And he talks about this as being love. He said that you rooted and grounded in love. Put your finger here and go two books to the right, Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. He says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, do what? So walk in him. Is that a choice? Let me ask you another question. Is it a requirement? Do I have to walk in love? We're not to put it in terms like that. Because love is not a legal thing. Love is a devotional thing. You love what he gives you to do. I don't want to ask him, well, do I have to? I want to. My wife doesn't have to ask me, can I love you today? I guess she wants to, but I'm going to make it the sermon like she wants to. See. <laughs> love is not a thing, well, this, what is this, Thursday afternoon? Well, I have, to, I have to love the Lord right now and read his word. No, it's not like that. Love goes with you all the time. If Christ is in your heart, love is in your heart. You may not be feeding yourself on it. You may not be rooted very deep in it. It may not be a, a strong thing in your life yet, but it's in there. Nobody can love you like God, not even your mother. Well, your mother can't save you. She can't keep you from all them ugly things you did. God could, and he did. There are people in this room who should be dead this morning. The car should have, you know, but we're here because God was there. Now, he didn't have to be there, but he was there. Because a long time ago, he picked you out before the foundation of the world and said you were his. And there came a day he plucked you out of the miry clay and he planted you in his courts. And there you're going to thrive and flourish and he's going to nurture you and bring you forth to what he wants. Now, you may not know that. But there comes a day we're going to be without spot, wrinkle or any such thing. We'll call that the fullness. It's going to happen to his people because God alone is able to make that happen. And everything that you need to start doing that you're not doing, he is able to influence you to start doing it. Again, he doesn't have to, but he chose to. Israel today in their land is a land of unregenerates. They have no Messiah they have no temple worship. They have no sacrifices. They can point to nothing in their religion by which their sins can be forgiven, not a single thing. If there was ever a nation that is blank on this earth, as far as God Almighty is concerned, it would probably be them. Then why are they so strong or blessed? Because God made a covenant with Abraham. And he said to his people, don't think that I'm doing anything that I'm doing with you because you deserve it, because you're righteous, because you're not. But I keep my word. Listen to me. God says, I keep my word. If I said you're going to be a great and mighty nation, you're going to be whether you want to be or not. You will be. You're going to get hammered for 2,000 years all over the world. I'm going to allow half of you to be destroyed in World War II. I'm going to bring you back. The whole world's going to hate you. They're going to deplore you. They're going to root for your enemies that are savage. How could you root for Hamas? 
and the world's going to hate you. And he said, you're going to be blessed and strong. You know why? Because I'm going to make you strong, not because you deserve it. You certainly haven't earned it. God's going to grant it. Well, how about us? God is going to grant us, because of the presence of Jesus Christ in our life, the only thing that commends us to God is Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory. The expectation of eternal life, it rests solely in Christ. And he says, if you therefore receive him, so walk ye in him. Look at verse 7, rooted. Does it say that in verse 7? Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. That's what he said a while ago. That's what we were talking about a while ago. That Christ may dwell on your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Well, here he says, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Look what God is doing to these people. Look what God, according to his power, has done to ordinary people like us, making us merry. I, I would say making us gay, but th- th- making, us, <laughs> making us merry and cheerful and glad-hearted. We're not naturally like that, but we're not natural people anymore. God has done something supernatural in us. Not because, you know, you're there like this and go, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. No. There's an activity going on. God, the Almighty, the very essence of divine love in you is doing something we may not even understand or even be appreciative of it. But God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And when he gets done with you, he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And you will say, you did it all. You're a humbled man when you can say that because you take no more credit for anything that happens. You just bow your head and say, thank you, Lord. You begin to see that the faith that you have that enables you to just keep going and to not give up and to keep your eyes on Christ comes from the power of God in you. And this is what he said in verse 17 that he wanted to happen. That, so that, Christ, who in your heart is dwelling by faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, verse 18, may be able. May be able. Think of it. Could we be able if he didn't do these other things? No. We could read this. We could probably write books on it, and I'm sure a preacher could preach on it. But notice he said that, verse 18, that we may be able to comprehend, it means to lay hold of or to seize with the mind. He said that we may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length, and the depth, and the height, and to know the love of Christ. That's another pause. There's something about what Jesus did for us that God wants us to know a lot about. There's something that Jesus did for us that we've heard so much in Bible stories We tend to just take it for granted and gloss over it. But there is something that Jesus did that he said that God wants all of his saints to know and comprehend or seize with the mind. To get a hold of this. Comprehend it. Understand this. The length and the depth and the breadth. I've got them backwards. And the height. All of these things, and to know the love of Christ. Let me tell you something. If we'll ever know what that means, the love of Christ, we will have to go back to the cross. You can read all the stories and listen to all the sermons you want to, but you'll have to go back to the cross. 
Maybe back to the garden where it started. And let God show you things. I'm sure he's going to show us this. You just hang on. We're going to learn more about this. But there is something about what he did. There is a magnitude of what Christ went through, what he did, that was beyond anything close to ordinary. And he didn't do it for himself. He did it for us. That you can comprehend that. Something that is so compelling, maybe something that so abides, has its dwelling place in our hearts and minds. That no matter how bad we may feel about today or yesterday or the future forecast, something is so compelling in us that I will never give up. Because he didn't. If he loved me like that, I should love him like that. That's what he wants. As I have loved you, so love me. And as I have loved you, love your brothers. I think, Lord, you're way over my head. He would say, no, I'm not. I don't know how he would say that, but no, he's not over our heads because he wrote this. This is all written down in Scripture for us, for you and I. Listen, folks, love trumps all other biblical subjects. Love trumps everything else in the Bible. The most outstanding thing about God, I would say that probably two, is God's holiness and God's love. Obviously, everything in God's attributes or companions are all together. But as you begin to break things down about this part of God and this way of God and that way of God, the two things that tend to have the strongest information is love and holiness. God is perfect and pure and holy. God is, and I don't have enough words and my brain's too little to go that far. But if you're going to tell me that that's part of his fullness and that you're bringing me to that, Boy, I need to be still and know who you are. I need to quit running and yakking and losing and giving up. I need to press in to find out more about this. What kind of marvelous experience does God have for us? What kind of love did God have for us that he wants to show us that it will have such an impact on how we live that we'll never be the same? Never look back anymore. Never let go of the plow. Paul said, just to know him, I gave up everything. What is it about him that makes a man do that? What was it about Jesus that made people die with a smile on their face? What was it about Jesus that makes a man hold gladly to the plow and never look back? To give up whatever he has. To walk away from all of his hobbies and his entertainments and whatever God says, get rid of. Yes, Lord. I don't want any interference between us. I don't want anything to take away from something you're showing me. My eyes will begin to see it. I didn't know you loved me like that. I didn't know what the power of it was. Now I'm beginning to see. I'm ashamed of myself, but I begin to see. That if God did that for me, then I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the Bible has so much to say about love and the power of it. Oh, it's just over and over and over. But one of the things that he tells us this, that when a man really loves the Lord, when a person comes to that place where His eyes are open and he does see. And and this deeper transformation, this deeper rooting in love takes place. One of the outstanding characteristics of it is John 14. Turn over to John 14. Man, as much as we pay for those Bibles, we got to use them. Stop off at John 15 first and look at verse 10. John 15 and verse 10. And what did he say? If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Does it say that? Okay, now stop. While I go, I got kind of dramatic, you know, but I can't help it. It's just, it that's the way it is. 
All this about God. Listen, Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in that. This will be the realm. Love of God. Isn't that amazing? If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I kept my Father's commandments, and I abode in his love and abide. 14, chapter 14 and verse 21. He that has my commandments and keeps them. Is that a choice? It is a choice. It's what faith does. It is the key to abiding. It's to believe and make a choice. He that hath my commandments, he said, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loves me. Could I say this to you this morning? All of you that are keeping his word, you're the ones that love the Lord. Could I say that? That's true. We may not want it to mean that exactly because we may be reminded that a whole lot of our life is a little bit half-hearted. But it shouldn't be half-hearted. I do believe this, that God's love, as it's revealed to you, as you begin to comprehend it, draws you to a place where your heart's desire is to love him back. And the zenith, the height of your loving him back is being faithful. Just being a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Look at verse 23. If a man love me, Jesus said, he will keep my words and my father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. You talk about experiencing God. There he is. Who experiences this? Who experiences this abiding presence, an inward reality of God with you, God in you, the people that keep the word? Why do we preach on faith so much? Because that's what faith does. I'm sure sometimes we made faith a legal thing. Well, I do this, now I deserve. No, we are faithful for one reason. You know what our reason for being faithful is? Galatians 5 said, you know what the reason for using your faith is? Paul was talking about legalism. He said, it's not circumcision or uncircumcision that means anything but faith. This is what means everything. Faith, which works by love. I want to do this. I want to trust God. I want to lean on God. I want to do this because this is what he wants. And I'm not doing this because I feel good because I do suffer trusting God because you can't get rid of your pain just because you trust God. It goes away. And people think we're foolish because, you know, we go through a difficult time when an aspirin would get you out of it. But we say, no, God said you take care of it. He said his word is medicine to my flesh in Proverbs 4. So I'm just going to do the word thing. I'm just going to do the word. I'm going to be a doer here. I'm going to trust the Lord with all my heart and, and, and uh, 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 lean not to my own understanding. That's what got me in trouble with the Lord. That's what's being changed, my understanding. And now I want to comprehend what he's saying. Therefore, Lord, I want to trust you. I want to trust you because that's what you want. Take my life. And let it be consecrated, Lord, unto thee. Take my moments and my days and let them flow in ceaseless praise. That's what I want. Those are lofty things. We think, no, those are the things that God gave us to want. He wants us to love him. What is the greatest thing a man can do in life? Thou shalt love the Lord, thy God, with all thy heart all your strength and all your might. That's the first and great commandment. And the second one is like it, the royal law. You love your neighbor as yourself. That's why God directs us. We see a person that has a need and you're able to help meet that need. That's the love of God. Mercy, relieving needs, showing loving kindness is being merciful. 
what God does to us. When you're merciful and when you're kind and you're loving and you're helpful and you're compassionate and considerate and you're thoughtful and you're tender towards other people, God is that way to you. Everything has changed because we're giving what he gives. And when we give what he gives, he gives more and we give more. And we're becoming more godlike in the way we live. You believe that's possible? Oh, it is possible. It really is possible. Would you go to the first John chapter two? First John chapter two and verse five. Who shall separate us from our membership in Shelbyville Christian Assembly, which we don't have? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Remember that question? Romans 8, the end of Romans 8. Who will separate us from his love? Shapiro? You know the song. You've had to sing it to get it right. Famine, pestilence, sword, bad days, difficult days. What's going to happen in our life if God says, you know, I'm not going to love you anymore. I'm through loving you. What would make him do that? Once he attaches his love to you folks, he ain't going to let go of you. You may try to let go of him. You may try to backslide. But he won't let go of you. He may let us wander around. He may deal with us harshly. But he says everybody he loves, he chastens. He corrects all of us because he doesn't want to condemn us or judge us along with the rest of the world. So he has to change us. And he changes us. How? Information. He corrects us. He brings ornery thinkers and ornery week. We had an ornery week, and he brings you in here and breaks your heart. But one of the things that God loves is a contrite, broken heart, and he does that. Because that gets your attention back on him, and you realize you've been so offensive to God. The way you act and the way you talk and the stuff you do and think and watch and, oh, God, I am. But you know what? He didn't throw you out. He brought you back. He let you sit here. Let you get wallow in your tears and sorrow. That's a good thing. Because it's the beginning of repentance and change. He loves us like that. He knows that we're not without flaw in this church. He knows that every one of us have our weaknesses. All of us. But he knows also how to make us all strong. And why else would he do that? Because he loves you. He made you his choice. You are the apple of his eye. He is going to pour himself into you, and you're going to be like he wants you to be, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, with a bowed head saying, thank you, Lord, when he gets done with you. Look at verse 5, 1 John 2, 5. See, 1 John 2 is pretty tough. Verse 4, it says, whoever says that he knows the Lord, let alone says he loves him, he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, he said, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Does it say that in your Bible? Whoo, that's strong, isn't it? But it's for us. It's for us. And then in verse 5, he says, but whoso keepeth his word, that's being faithful. In him verily is the love of God perfected. Perfected teleo, which means brought to completion. Does its finishing work. Brings us somewhere. In other words, it's doing something. Whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. And in this way, we know that we are in him. No question. Everybody can judge himself by that verse if you want to. You can do that. Look at chapter 4. And verse 19. We all have heard this verse many times. Do you love the Lord today? Oh, yeah, I love the Lord. You know why you love the Lord? If you do, if you do, you know why you do? We love him because what? Let me ask you a question. If he did not love you, could you love him? 
See, if he did not first love you, you couldn't love him. You could have thoughts about him. You could study all the things about him and, and I guess write a booklet or a book. But I'm telling you, there is something so deep and so penetrating. Something that gets inside where it hadn't been a lot of activity about love. And about that attribute of God beginning to manifest itself to you, as he said in John 14, 23, where your mind is beginning to be aware of something it has not fully appreciated. You haven't put a whole lot of thought into it. Just you sing songs on love, you read stories about love. Everybody talks about love. It's the most common word in the whole church. And yet, one day God begins to Break it down for you till you begin to see not a word, but a person. And yet not a person, but God. You begin to see something like you've never seen before. It's just something that arrests all your thoughts and emotions, and you stop and you think, you know, Lord, I, 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 haven't, I, haven't, I haven't done well in this area. Well, I may have the faith thing down, at least so far, I have that down pretty much pat. But as far as love, you know, I've been outspoken. I didn't care what people thought, said things about other people that weren't necessary to say, acted in ways, you know, at Bonnie's ball game that I shouldn't have acted. I may have kicked the cat off the porch. Or now that we got a pig running around the yard, I kicked it the other day. <laughs> We got a little pork chop running around the house. Sarah's pig. She wasn't there at home, so I gave him a good boot. <laughs> gave her a boot. And you begin to see. You begin to see a lot of things. You ask yourself the question. You reckon that's something God would do? I don't say it like that. Well, that's the way I'm saying it. But Jesus, you know, walking with his disciples, walking along the way, and God was waiting Kick a dog. There wasn't any pigs running around Palestine, but uh, <laughs> especially not a Vietnamese pot-bellied pig is belly about that close to the ground. They're easy to kick. They're little compact units. They're easy to easy to boot. But anyway, anyway, we love him because he first loved us, what we're beginning to discover, if we're discovering anything, is that the kind of love that he has shown to us is a kind of love he wants us to show to each other as a result of him showing that to us. And the love we show back to him is the offering of ourselves, like he did. Without spot to God. We offer ourselves to God. You want to know what, where the deeper part, you go to the cross. You go back to the cross. It's there. Trust me, the whole picture is there. It's one of those subjects in the Bible that has a lot to be discovered. A lot of pages here that need to be turned. And a lot of quiet thought put into what he's showing you about how God loves you, the effect that love is supposed to have on you, how it makes you compelling and earnest in the way you live for him. It does all of that. It's a powerful, powerful thing. First John chapter four, look at verse seven. First John four, beginning in verse seven, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. That's the way God is. And everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, because again, God is love. This is the way God manifested the love of God toward us, because, and listen, back to the cross, because God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Now herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and what? And go back to the cross. And he sent his son, to be the propitiation, the redeemer, we'll put it that way, the one who removed our sin and our guilt before God. 
He did something. All of us were helpless. We could not save ourselves. There was no such thing as choosing God one day. We were lost. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You got to go back to the cross. But he goes on. We'll leave that for another message. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us. And his love is perfected in us. And hereby we know that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Remember we read that in Ephesians 3? By the power of his spirit? He's the revealer, the revelator. The spirit is. And he said, and we have seen verse 14 and believe that the father sent the son to be the savior of the world. And goes on and on. This is the love chapter in 1 John. Something about the deeper things of God. It challenges everybody in this room to examine yourself. Do you love your neighbor? Do you love your brother? Or do you love yourself? Are you afraid to go forward? Or you love yourself and you draw back? Jesus said in Luke 14, you know the story. If any man love mother, Matthew 10. If any man loves his mother or his father, verse 37, loves mother, father, brother, sister, anybody before me, he cannot be my disciple. You can't love anything before God. You're only able to love everything that needs to be loved as God loves through you. A man cannot love his wife the way God wants a wife to be loved unless God loves her through him. So much in marriage is just self-satisfaction. It's not love and concern and caring and consideration and being tender and thoughtful. Putting somebody else before yourself. So much of it is just me, mine, mine, us four, no more. But that's not love. Love is always putting somebody else before yourself. 1 Corinthians 13, we don't have time to read all of that. That's what love does. It thinks no ill. It's not trying to manipulate anybody. You're not trying to hurt anybody, get even. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't share in gossip and all this kind of stuff. Sometimes you speak the truth in love. You say, we shouldn't do that. Because we're Christians. Well, as we come down to the end, would you go back to Ephesians 3? Ephesians chapter 3 in verse 19, there seems to be a conflict in verse 19 and 18. Verse 18 says he wants us to comprehend the love of God. Verse 19 says love passes knowledge. How can we comprehend something that's beyond knowledge? I don't know how you would answer that. I think I have an answer. The love of God, I don't think you can just know it and learn it from a book. It has to be revealed. It's a revelation. God discloses, remember that in 1 John 14, 23? God shows himself to you, and you begin to see something. You couldn't learn that in a book. There's not a shrewd and clever enough person in the world, and you don't have a, enough of whatever it takes to know what love is unless God shows it to you. What is called love today is nothing but warm, fuzzy, huggy, kumbaya stuff. There's nothing wrong with loving people and getting along with people. But more than anything else, love is personal. Between you and God, your heart and his will. How committed you want to be to him. It depends on how much you really want to love him. Because he's committed it all to you. What Jeremiah 31, 3, you know how God chose to love us? I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Imagine you. These boys on the front row, they may not understand a third of what I'm saying. But God loves them. Why? Because he wants to. They don't earn it. They don't deserve it. We can't do that. 
He loves us because he chooses to love us. Nobody can make him love us. You cannot go to church enough, study enough, and say, I love you, do you love me back? It doesn't work like that. But when God loves you, you bow your head. When he begins to love you, your head goes down. Remember Jeremiah said, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Loving kindness is a word for mercy. Therefore, with mercy, with a desire to relieve you from what you're going to suffer through eternity, to avoid, I'm going to draw you to me. Come to me. He breaks your heart, changes your life, gives you new purpose, reorients your spirit, redirects your thoughts. One day you realize you do love the Lord. You know why you do? Because where we started, he granted it. And the revelation of this love, from verse 19, the revelation of this love to you comes to our title. You start in verse 16, if it grants you, Christ may dwell on your heart, you may be able to comprehend and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, notice, that you might be filled with the fullness of God. Is this not true? The more he draws near to us, the more we draw near to him, the more we begin to imitate his ways, access his ways, let his ways become our ways, the more we give place to him. Does that not draw him into your life? He must increase, I must what? If I decrease while he's increasing, what's happening in my life? Something is filling up with something new, isn't it? I'm telling you, the fullness of God, the more you let go of your way and open yourself up to his way, the more he comes in, the more he takes over until it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Aren't you thankful? Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus. We are so thankful this morning, Lord, such as we are, such as we are. We are thankful. Lord, so much of our life is like a man with holes in his pockets. You've given us good things that's gone out. We've lost it and given it up. We've spent so many hours in church feeling empty. We've spent so much time realizing we're not making much progress spiritually. Sometimes we think all we do is struggle. No blessings, no relief. No gifts, just struggles. All we do is struggle. We just struggle and struggle and struggle. Lord, your people think like that. And yet, I believe, Lord, in the midst of all these dark moments and difficult days, there is a place of quiet rest. There is a secret place where something happens that just changes everything. That even the least of us, even the most uncomely member, can have the biggest smile, the most joy, just knowing that you love them. What power. Lord, open our eyes. Teach us more of this. Take us back to the cross. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God is good. Oh, how He loves you and me. Oh, how He loves you and me. He gave His life. What more could He? Oh, how he loves
What? 